Hello, this is the HSJ Health Check podcast, and I'm your host, Annabelle Collins. This week, we're going to be focusing our discussion on mental health inequalities, how the pandemic has exacerbated them, and what needs to be done to improve patient care. I'm really pleased to be joined by Andy Bell, the Centre for Mental Health's Deputy Chief Executive, and our mental health senior correspondent, Rebecca Thomas, for whom this is her last podcast at HSJ, not because she's going on strike, but because she is leaving for Pastors Pastors New next week. Welcome both. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. I think, first of all, it would be really helpful for listeners to explain what we mean when we're talking about health inequalities in the mental health sector. It's it's a huge, it's a huge term. Um, So could you tell us what does it encompass? Well, yeah, no, you're right. It's one of those coverall terms, isn't it, that um, can seem quite vague. I mean, Andy, Andy will be able to explain this perhaps far better than me. But in my in my column this week, I focused specifically on the uh, physical health inequalities and the social deprivation inequalities that exist for those with um, mental illness, learning disabilities, and autism. So, in that, that's that's the um, that's the uh, lens that I took, particularly within health inequalities. But obviously, we have these the broader issues around inequalities to access as well. Um, Andy, I don't know. You're again. You'll have a far better idea than me than uh, what what this what this banner term can cover. I mean, as you say, it's across a whole range of of mm-hmm. different uh, layers and levels, isn't it? So, so we know that there are inequalities in our risk of having a mental health difficulty in the first place, and indeed, poor mental health is very often driven by inequality in society. Mental health inequalities are social and economic inequalities, put simply. Uh, poverty, racism, discrimination, uh, violence against women. uh, These are very, very preponderant causes of poor mental health in society and the unequal risk of having a mental health difficulty. Sadly, very often those inequalities are then reinforced in the health and care system. Uh, And and that is both reflected in the poorer experiences of people from, from some groups of mental health support um, but also the poor experiences of people living with mental illness of uh, both both health and care, but also in life more generally and, and some of the kind of uh, experiences of discrimination and, and, and uh, poor treatment and injustice that many, many people with mental illness still experience every day of their lives. I think um, it's, it's interesting when you talk about health inequalities, uh, looking at, for example, looking at uh, for example, what the Lancet, uh, a report published by published in the Lancet last week, which looked at the death rate of those of a group of people with learning disabilities and mental health illnesses, um, uh, the death rate from COVID-19 and other causes, uh, is essentially in a nutshell sh- showed they had a much higher, much higher, um, much higher death rate from COVID-19, but also um, a, a death rate from other causes, which was at least double. Um, and it, I mean, in the report, it, it admitted that these, this is not a new phenomenon, but the pandemic, it, it suggested the pandemic has exacerbated these. There you go. Another, another tricky word to um, choose, for a, choose for a podcast. Uh, but what does that mean? I guess my, my thinking when I read the paper, what, what does that mean in reality? I mean, uh, for those with m- mental illness, why? would they have a higher rate of death from COVID-19? And is it all of the above? Is it the social deprivation? Is it the um, inequalities in access to physical health care? Was it the communication at the time of the pandemic um, 
specifically was there a strategy to was there a strategy to communicate with communicate with those living with um, mental illness at the beginning of the pandemic around social isolation mm. I don't think there was a, a systematic one Andy I don't know um, if you were having conversations at the time then uh, no, I, I don't think there was. And as you say, this is multi-layered. And, and I think where we're getting evidence now from around the world, we're seeing that people, particularly when we're with severe mental illness, um, particularly psychosis, we're seeing mortality rates from COVID-19 specifically that are two to three times what you'd expect. Uh, and, and, and that's a really quite profoundly worrying finding because that mm. tells us that, that, that uh, uh, people with mental illness around the world are, are dying kind of disproportionately from from an illness that, that is nothing to do with, with your mental health uh, and undoubtedly a large part of that comes down to to the inequalities that are bringing people to, to experience mental illness in the first place uh, more economically precarious uh, less likely to, to be kind of safely and securely housed um, I certainly wasn't aware of any specific efforts to communicate uh, safety messages specifically with people living with a mental illness, um, uh, certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, and I don't think I've seen one since. Um, and of course, the the, the rate of, of dying young is higher for people with mental illness anyway. So, so people are more likely to die of, of a whole range of physical causes. Uh, for, for, from heart disease, uh, cancer, um, lung disease, you know, the, 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 there are very few things, unfortunately, that don't disproportionately affect people with a mental illness. Uh, and in general, you have the health of, of someone 15 to 20 years older than you if you're living with a mental illness in Britain today. And, and that's uh, obviously caused by many, many different things. But, but uh, the only way we solve that is by seeing it as, as, as something which needs a, a whole system solution. It's not just a kind of something that we can put a sticking plaster over. That, that was a line that was picked up in the long term plan, wasn't it? Those with severe mental illness tend to die 15 to 10, 20 years earlier than those without. Um, I've, I had a look through that. Sorry. No, I was just going to say perhaps we could um, sort of look at look at what was written in the long term plan and look at what was kind of going on pre in the years pre pandemic. Um, Rebecca, you, this is also something that you you wrote a lot about in your column. You were kind of looking back over the last three years about what had been achieved, and it felt as a I'm certainly not a, a mental health specialist journalist, but it felt like there was a bit of a the tide sort of turned a few years ago, it felt like there was more attention and more money being put into investing in, in mental health care and improving it. Um, what happened? Did it did it make a difference? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I joined, I mean, I, I took on the mental health patch just as uh, the long term plan was being agreed and um, headlines will, will all remember as it got it got 2.3 billion um, mm. uplift which may or may not have been what it asked for at the time but was a significant increase um, mm. on on the funding on the funding uplifts it had previously so by all in basic terms that was a win um, and it was one of the only areas to get its own implementation plan um, one of the only areas where we had workforce numbers floated a bit earlier whether or not we were able to hit those um, there was a sharp I think there was a sharp focus on it particularly within um, NHS England and government at the time allowed that to happen. If we look at um, what the long-term plan delved into in terms of addressing 
inequalities for those with mental, living with mental illnesses. I, I had a look through it this morning um, and I came up a bit thin with what practical um, targets or um, uh, what services could were were supposed to be implemented to address these issues. I mean, was the health check which came up um, and uh, and a few other things around smoking. Um, Andy, you, you may have kind of more details in your mind about this, but it seemed a bit thin on the ground in terms of what could actually happen. And is that because the NHS the NHS is limited in what it can do because of that age old, um, that repeated uh, um, repeated problem with the underfunded social care and local authority. Uh, I don't. Uh, I mean, I, I can I can take a guess, but uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll both have your own theories on that. Yeah, it, it's it's. I mean, the long term plan is is really probably one of the best we've had certainly in terms of it's, it's an nhs led mental health plan so of course what it can't do is address the, the causes of poor mental health and the causes of inequality facing people living with mental ill health in in that broader way uh, and and that's something which i think is really a question for government uh, and having a proper whole of government approach to mental health rather than just leaving it to the nhs i think is 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 where we need to go but um uh, the, the the promise of of extending out health checks for everybody living with with a severe mental illness is is a really powerful one. Uh, we are nowhere near being able to to implement that yet, but there has been some recent progress. So this year, uh, GPs are being uh, incentivized to do the full six point health check for people living with a mental illness. It had gone down to a smaller uh, uh, piece, but but it's now been kind of brought back up again. And, and that's really positive news. Um, inevitably, there are difficulties where this is something that's delivered by primary care, given the amount of pressure that GPs are under right now, which HSJ readers will, will know all about. Um, uh, but nonetheless, it is it is a positive move as long as the health check leads to something. Uh, and, and NHS England is very clear, it isn't just a health check for health check's sake. You do the health check and then you provide people with the support they need on the basis of what you find. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing the health check properly. Um, but yes, there is a specific pledge around smoking as well. First of all, for inpatients to provide people with, with stop, stop smoking treatment uh, when they're in hospital. And that's the same if you're in a mental health hospital as, as if you're in hospital for your physical health. Uh, and I think there's a plan to extend that out to people uh, using community mental health services over time. Uh, if that's implemented properly using evidence-based approaches, uh, which we now know work, that could make a huge impact. But of course, we still have to think about how we can support people in a more holistic way with their physical health. And, and uh, we're just really at the kind of the, the beginning of thinking about that. There is a long, long way to go. I do. Um, I, uh, I reported a few. Oh, was it uh, just before the pandemic? I did a report on some really interesting work the city and Hackney did um, trying to extend out elements of the health check to all those um, they, they considered living with uh, severe mental illness. So as we know, it's currently it it's currently only applies to a small co cohort of diagnoses. They they extended it out and specifically looked at medications management, for example. To do this, they had to they had to manually go through through their GP lists in partnership with um, East London Foundation Trusts. 
psychiatrist and look at the medication they were on, look at the physical side effects, so the weight management side, um, and they managed to take people people off who had been who had been on antipsychotics for 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 years and years, um, and they managed to bring them off that. But that took that was that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for a, um, and you think it within now, particularly within the context of um, the workload pressures for primary care, um, you question how how many areas are going to actually have the capacity or even the headspace uh, to do that. Yeah, and and I mean, it's, it, there are good examples. City and Hackney have done some fantastic work on the interface between primary and secondary care, where where a lot of people with poor mental health really find a, a huge amount of frustration and and uh, poor quality support. Actually, City and Hackney have, have have innovated in that space for a long time. We've seen some really positive work from from Cambridge and Peterborough, where they've been having a, a much more proactive approach to reaching out to people living with a mental illness in 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 their local community to, to make sure they get access to health checks uh, and and to do that kind of really kind of in a, in a kind uh, uh, but but assertive way uh, and I think we're beginning to see that 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 looks like a really powerful model um, and and I think the, the the difficulty inevitably is is that you need the workforce to be able to to do that and and uh, the thing the long-term plan and all the other innovations around it stand or fall on is having a workforce of sufficient number uh, and capability to, to to meet the these very very uh, ambitious stretchy targets that, that that we've now got to work towards and this is of course all in the, the context of covid but i know rebecca and andy that some new um i know um access to talking therapies and other kind of um newer initiatives so we're in the long-term plan is that right the mental health long-term plan um so that it's interesting the the long-term plan looked to rebalance that so the five-year mm. forward view which was the which was the big plan really yes. will, listeners will remember before that focused very much on uh, these um uh, focus very much on services such as IAT and mm. kind of newer initiatives such as perinatal services and mm. that meant um, admittedly in the long-term plan and Simon Stevens admitted this at the time that left core services so community mental health mm. teams for example that that left them to flounder really they, mm. it, it wasn't weren't really focused on and the long-term plan seeked to address this there isn't that imbalance yeah. and I wonder now I'm um, just thinking of, I guess going slightly beyond inequalities but the impact of the pandemic and um people needing to perhaps seek mental health support where they they perhaps didn't need it before um do you think that these that's that services are robust enough to deal with perhaps more 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 people needing needing their help? I just wonder whether um, whether you think how you think the uh, mental health provision can can stand up against this kind of increased pressure. Um, gosh, it, it's I mean, this this is the big challenge. And, and the truth is, we we don't know. We've been looking at the evidence around the likely impact of the pandemic on people's mental health. And, and we forecast last year and we still forecast that, that the equivalent of about 10 million people will need mental health support as a result of the pandemic. About two thirds of those are people who may have needed mental health support anyway. And it's worth remembering that, that about somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of people experiencing a mental health problem never get any help at all 
Uh, and that's a consistent finding over the last 20 years. That's not new. Um, and, and so I think that there's a danger of, of either kind of assuming that mental health need won't rise and we just need to carry on doing what we're doing at much the same rate and that will be OK. There's also a danger of kind of imagining this as a sudden surge in demand and people suddenly kind of uh, everyone seeking help for their mental health at the same time. And that's not likely either. And in fact, what we need is a proactive strategy to reach out to people who are at very, very high risk, those who've experienced the, the most severe forms of the illness, those who've lost loved ones, people who've been working in services where they've, they've dealt with all sorts of traumatic and frightening things. Um, and, and actually providing earlier help, looking at where digital options might be more effective than, than kind of traditional approaches. Um, but inevitably, again, it comes down to the workforce um, and we do need to kind of keep working on kind of creating uh, both a kind of a healthy pipeline of people coming into work in mental health in a wide variety of roles. Um, mm. But we also need to support the workforce that's there. And, and, and I think that that's a real worry that, that we've got a workforce which is overstretched, burnt out, uh, really, really struggling. Uh, and if we're not attentive to that, then, then everything else is is going to really, really struggle. And it, I, I guess whether when the pandemic, and then this will be true of for every sector, but uh, the pandemic hit when mental health services were hoping to start recruiting to bolster the services that it would be able to later rely on in the later the latter half of the pan. And if I'm remembering my if I'm remembering my figures correctly, for secondary care and mental health workforce, the tide was starting to, the, the decline was starting to slow. So it was starting to level out. It will be interesting to see what happens in the next year, whether that can, whether that, um, whether we have a, another de decline in the workforce or whether it cha changes the tide. Um, obviously, that doesn't cover workforce such as IAPT. And um, mm. we'll know anecdotally, Andy, I'm sure you, you will have had these discussions. The IAP workforce was really struggling mm. as well prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, we, 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 it now looks like from, from the figures that, that, that we've seen that, that the mental health workforce is increasing again. But we've kind of just got to the point where we're, where we've kind of recovered from the years of austerity and, and the reductions in the workforce uh, between 2010 and kind of 2015, 16. Um, so it's going up and it's going in the right direction. But we've just reached a point where we're recovering from, from, from the dip that we experienced during the years of, of cuts and, and, and in a sense overlooking mental health services. So we've got a huge way still to go and, and we do need to make sure that, that those people that we've got working in services are and feel looked after um and they're in organizations which are compassionate which allow flexible working that, that enable people to feel safe uh and and create kind of um opportunities that, that people actually want to take and and inevitably it is a stressful working environment but but um it's then about the systems you create around that to to, to look after people that really matter mm. annabella i think you you, you as a workforce lead you will you will see in a lot of reports oh we, we're going to have to rely on alternative workforce yes absolutely i, I often yeah. question what does that mean what is this alternative, alternative. alternative workforce that's going to come out come out of <laughs> well it's not using healing crystals <laughs> it's um i think it's it will be um 
it will be relying on newer roles so um with nursing nursing associates and and it's i was reading a trust board paper um just last week and they were they were just talking about how they are um counting nursing associates as part of their nursing establishment um and they were being very open about it which is actually quite refreshing but it's it, it, they're just in such a trust, whether it's a mental health trust or an acute trust or a community trusts are in such a difficult situation with workforce. Um, often you do find people working without the right skills or experience. Um, and people um, often with midwifery, I read of people being pulled in from the community into an acute ward because there's no, there are no um, midwives working in the, in the acute sector. So it's, it's, it's kind of, kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know, there's just not enough people to go around. And I'm sure um, I know it's the same in mental health. It's um, it's um, not ideal. And I think it's very hard to see without um, an increase in substantial funding and increase in um, training places at universities, um, improving the apprenticeship model, how we're going to have a real a strengthened medium and long-term pipeline because in the short term that obviously just doesn't work because it takes time to train people. It does I mean there, there are some really interesting approaches being taken I mean we've seen the huge value of peer support for example and again we need to value the peer support workforce in mental health as mm -hmm. much as other more traditional uh, professional roles. We need to look at, at the fact that there are, are lots and lots of people with psychology and psychological therapy skills who are not working in, in the statutory system or indeed public service at all. So, so there are ways in which we can kind of be a bit more creative. We can certainly look at, at with digital working, whether that kind of reduces some of the barriers that, that people can maybe work in more flexible ways that, that fit around their family responsibilities for example in caring roles uh and and so i think you know we can be more flexible and creative but but it is also important that we have a, a proper pipeline of training the spending review is coming up um we need to make sure that mental health gets a proper fair share of of, of funding for uh, health education yes um, because the whole long-term plan stands or falls on our ability to, to build that workforce across mm. all those range of disciplines to, to, to do the things we need we need to do. Mm. With um, Rebecca, you mentioned earlier that in the long-term plan, mental health did receive um, a lot of money. Is there um, a feeling of, um, I don't know, optimism or is there kind of a nervousness that because it was it was given that money a few years ago, it might not again. I mean, I know it doesn't work like that, but it still needs money. Um, but what do you think? Are you how do you both feel about that? I mean, I cut covering mental health for three years. Um, uh, optimism isn't often it wasn't a word I used wasn't a word I used too often. And, and uh, as it stands, the mute music seems like I mean, the mute music appears to be that mental health has had its lot so far I mean government may may turn around on the spending review but um that as we know the last the funding settlement the NHS uh, uh that was announced for the NHS in August it's not going to be enough to cover any increases in um uh service uh, sorry any um any increase in demand for mental health services so uh pessimistic probably 
but I'm a journalist, so I'm uh, pessimistic by yeah. nature. Exactly. We're meant to be pessimistic. I Andy. work in the voluntary sector. We're supposed to be rampant optimists, aren't we? So, so <laughs> yeah. I'll try and be more optimistic. Um, I mean, the 2.3 billion, you know, that, that's ring fence funding, and that's really important. So, so we need to ensure, first of all, that we can actually spend that um and and that we use that to do the things that, that were kind of set out in the long-term plan clearly that has to be the beginning it's not the end of the story and and there is further development that, that's required uh to, to kind of keep that going it, it was never supposed to be uh the once in a lifetime solution that would get us to exactly where we want to be it was it was five years out of ten and and um, it was hugely disappointing that the money announced in September didn't include a specific allocation for mental health. That's uh, that is a, a concerning sign in terms of backsliding. But we also need to make sure it's not just the NHS. The NHS only works in mental health if there is adequate funding for mental health, social care and for public health. And we've seen the public health grant nosedive to, to by by 24% over the last five years, including in-year cuts. Uh, we've seen social care really struggle to meet basic care act um, uh, requirements. So any solution needs to include the three um, altogether. We can't just kind of uh, uh, keep keep looking at NHS spending without that that important context of what's happening in local government. And that was the big caveat across the whole of the mental health plan, wasn't it? Mm. That this is just that this is just part of the picture, and the tide won't change without an adequate social care. Yeah, absolutely. Social care is such an important part. We've been talking about mental health inequalities. Social care is very often what helps to guard against those inequalities. It, it mm -hmm. supports people living with a mental illness, with with housing, with money, with with being able to kind of live. Um, and and without that support, we're simply allowing more people to end up in more crises which of course in some cases unfortunately require people to go into hospital that is both extremely stressful and distressing and traumatic for them and and very high cost for the nhs so so failing to invest in in kind of community-based support and earlier help uh, ironically austerity costs a lot of money uh, because you're simply piling more and more costs onto the nhs as well as causing people unnecessary harm and I think also looking forward, um, we've often discussed on this podcast the creation of integrated care systems and how you know, this is how the NHS is going to be organised um, for the foreseeable future. And Rebecca, you described this in your, your column as an opportunity, perhaps. Um, and we've talked, we've talked a bit about the integration between mental health care and primary care. Um, we've talked previously about the relationship with acute care um, and how there's an awful lot more to do there. Um, but I wonder what... What opportunity does the creation of ICSs represent? Um, where have you seen perhaps good practice in how uh, mental health care is being provided in a more integrated way? Um, I, I, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting to see um, what integrated care systems mean for, for mental health. We've certainly seen some really positive examples. I'm thinking about the provider collaboratives that have been set up to improve care for, for children and young people in a mental health crisis. We know that it's awful for a child to, to be taken to hospital for their mental health, particularly outside their local area. And we know in some places it's happened routinely. And the provider collaboratives actually were given funding by NHS England to sort their local systems out, to build up much more community-based support, sometimes to reconfigure their hospital services locally. Um, 
and provide alternatives to admission so that children got both a, a, a more uh, effective form of support without having to go away from their home area. And we've seen some great examples of what that's managed to achieve. Um, again, it's early days, but I think it shows that if you really do bring the system together and you really do look at who's having the poorest experiences and, and how we can improve it, that it can make things happen. But of course, integrated care systems are, are inevitably going to be under enormous amount of pressure, enormous amount of demand. Will mental health have a voice in those? Will they be offering real parity for mental health? Will they be thinking about the broader determinants of health, mental and physical health, that actually create demand for health services in the first place? And will they be working with their partners outside the health and care system to influence those things? That's a lot to ask, but that's where we're going to get the really big wins. That's where integrated care systems can really start to do something different. Thank you so much. I think. Um... That is a, a good a good point to to draw our podcast to the close to, to a close. It's sort of be interesting to see um, what happens over the next few months. Um, and Rebecca, um, your final, as I said at the beginning, it's your final podcast with us. I just wanted to um, ask you just for kind of any final reflections, really, after you've covered the sector for for quite a few years now. Oh, how sad! Are you gonna make, are you gonna make me teary, Annabelle? Um, <laughs> I've done my job. <laughs> it's been a it's been a roller coaster uh, covering mental health, and while there is while the, while my job as a journalist is to report about pressures, what report about concerns, I speak to so many people who really do have that kind of energy and vision mm. that he was talking about, and really do do want to um, help change change things. Do want leaders that do want to go out and talk to their housing association for mm. example um so there is there is a lot of good good work and good people um perhaps my biggest reflection is probably going to be um <laughs> it's probably going to be as common a reflection is that uh we're not very good at sharing that good work um uh within the healthcare mm. sector uh and that well, perhaps that's what's more of that is needed uh mm. So Did yeah, one of <laughs> one of the <laughs> very good. All right. Well, thank you so thank thank you both so much for joining me. It's been a fascinating episode, and um, we will be hopefully um, very soon discussing mental health again on this podcast. Um, but for now, just a reminder: our podcast is available every week on our website and across all main podcast channels. And please don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>